Uh, each week in this series, I'm beginning, beginning with, uh, with a prayer and the same prayer uh, every week. Let's pray it now. Oh God, please remove from us our pride and self-confidence and in their place put poverty of spirit, hunger for you, rigorous study of your word, white hot devotion to Jesus Christ and utter indifference to all worldly gain. Jesus, please show us your glory. Holy Spirit, give us grit for perseverance. Father, overflow your grace from us to one another. In Jesus' great and powerful name we pray. Amen. A little bit earlier we were thinking about triumphs uh, and, and celebrations and victories. When you have a victory... Sport, or in another area of life perhaps, if you're young enough or still active enough to play sport, when you kick a goal, when you seal a deal, when you triumph over the odds, how do you celebrate? Are you a high-fiver? A, a, a dabber? You, you, you're from Leighton Hewitt era? Come on! One of the kids in my under-nine soccer team, uh, soccer team, AFL team, uh, last weekend, kicked his first goal ever. Everybody else in our team has kicked a goal this year, and he kicked his first. Right near the end, we were 20 goals in front, but the celebration went right around the whole field as he sought out a high five from everybody else. It even kind of spilt over onto the ground next to us, uh, getting high fives. It was a huge celebration. Now, in this passage that we're going to read, towards the end of it, there is a triumph. And I want you to feel what this passage says about Paul's triumph. How do you feel yourself responding? Is this a high-five moment? A come-on moment. See how you feel. 2 Corinthians, we're going to pick it up in verse 23 of chapter 1, uh, reading right through to the end of chapter 2. Paul writes, I call God as my witness, and I take... My life, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did. So that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive... I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, 
for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Uh, Back in 2012, it's already been mentioned, October, the main street of Sydney hosted a spectacular parade. Thousands of people turned out in George Street round about lunchtime, jubilant cheering, uh, streamers being thrown everywhere, confetti falling from the sky. We were celebrating victory. And I was there. And the focal point of this triumphal parade up George Street was the AFL Premiership Cup, wrapped in red and white because the Sydney Swans had snatched it from the grip of the enemy. Now here in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses an image of a triumphal procession to view Christ's mission in the world. He's got in mind the Roman version of a victory parade. One where a victorious war general would lead a parade. The war general would be an impressive chariot, usually with four animals abreast. They'd either be four great war horses or even four elephants. Some historians tell us at different recounts of these kind of Roman victory processions. And behind this great war general or emperor or the king, whoever it might be at that time, behind him would be his soldiers returning from war in victory. With them, they'd be bringing the booty and spoils of war. Behind them would be the prisoners of war and also caught up in this victory procession back home were rescued captives who were returning back to their home. Hundreds, thousands of people would be out with cheering and singing. And what the historians tell us is that in all these Roman parades, there's usually incense burning. You you could smell it before they were coming. Maybe they were trying to, uh, whether it was an offering to gods or or covering over the smells of war, of sweaty soldiers coming home, uh, whatever it might have been, this spectacular victory parade was noisy and colourful and had a smell. But Paul's telling us this this is what Christ's mission is like. And for us, Christ's mission doesn't appear very spectacular in the world. It doesn't seem to have hundreds of thousands of people gathering and cheering and being caught up in it. 
For the first century Christians in Corinth, this image seems unusual. For us, perhaps too. You see, Paul's ministry amongst the Corinthians and and in the wider part of the world at the time, Paul's ministry was seen to be weak, haphazard, ineffective, unimpressive, defeated. What about our time? Rousing revivals and energetic evangelism seem few and far between. It seems more as if we are just treading water in the world. Perhaps mission in the world today feels a bit more like a never-ending final day of a cricket test match where you're just trying to get the draw. We don't tell wonderful stories every week of people turning to Jesus because it's not happening round about us very much. Paul considers that what the Corinthians see and that what we see of Christ's mission is a triumph, a gentle triumph. Jesus Christ is leading a jubilant victory that we are part of. And it's a gentle triumph. One which is marked by gutsy gentleness, unsettled urgency and sincere speech. These are three of the things that we're going to see in this passage this afternoon. The gentle triumph of Christ's mission that we are on, that we are caught up in, gentle triumph is marked by gutsy gentleness, unsettled urgency and sincere speech. In verses 1 to 11, all Christians who have a leadership role in life, whether it's leadership in church, leadership in the workplace, leadership in family, leadership in community, all Christians who have some kind of leadership role need to be influenced by Paul's character of leadership. And one of the things that stands out about Paul's character of leadership is that it's gutsy gentleness. He's enduring motivation is always seeking the good of others. Uh, See there in verse 23, back in chapter 1. He has delayed his his visit. He has delayed his return to Corinth uh, to help them sort out the issues that are going on there. He delays it in order to spare them. Verse 24, he doesn't want to lord it over them. Though Paul has been appointed to a position of authority, he doesn't want to use that authority in any kind of a way that gives the sense that he is ruling them. But, verse 24, he wants to work with them for their joy. Paul's enduring motivation is always to seek the good of the people round about him. Let me read out for you verse 4. Follow along again, please. Paul says, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. This is the kind of church leader that we want. This is the kind of pastor that we want to have. This is the kind of pastor that I want to be. 
It's the kind of parent that we want to be, the kind of ministry leader that we want to be, a life group member, the kind of friend that we want to be to one another. Somebody who in the midst of great distress and anguish of task, anguish of heart with many tears, might still be operating in a way of showing the great depth of love that we have for one another. Now if you are somebody like me, who needs gentleness to ooze out of you more and more, can I encourage you to reflect on Paul's character? Take just 2 Corinthians and and read through it from start to finish with a highlighter or an underliner and just mark all the bits that talk about Paul's motivation and Paul's character and Paul's feelings and, 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 and be affected by that. That we might ooze gutsy gentleness like Paul. This is not, though, all just about a kind of fireside kumbaya session for Paul where he wants to get all cosy and warm with the Corinthians. The context of Paul saying all this is a problem, a serious problem that is going on in Corinth and has been going on for a while. Amongst the groups of churches there that Paul has been involved in planting, there is some kind of massive moral failure and falling out that has been kind of minimised, ignored, swept under the carpet, and it has caused great, great problem and issue there. So much so, in verse 1, that Paul says, because of it, he needs to make a painful visit. And he avoids, for the moment, going there to make the painful visit. Verse 2, it brings Paul great grief. Verse 3, it brings him distress. In 1 Corinthians, the letter that he had previously written to them, in chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Shall I come with a rod of discipline? Shall I come with the wooden spoon? The wooden spoon that God has entrusted to me. Paul has been particularly appointed as apostle by God, sent from God to preach the gospel and establish the churches in that part of the world at that unique time in history. And Paul does have a particular authority uh, over those churches that he might bring on them a rod of discipline with punishment. This is gutsy gentleness. And the outcome of Paul, for Paul, of this discipline, and the outcome of all discipline among brothers and sisters is restoration. Restoration into relationship with God and restoration into relationship with one another. Follow again with me, please, in verse 6. Verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, now we actually don't know the details of what went on in Corinth. Uh, We know some details of all kinds of different uh, uh, moral problems that were going on in 1 Corinthians. But what Paul is talking about here is probably something that has gone on since he wrote uh, to the Corinthians uh, a couple of years earlier. Uh, But whatever it was, it was appropriate for the congregation there for there to be punishment whether it was inflicted by the the, the civil leaders round about or it was a punishment uh, from uh, the church or it was a 
a, a, a consequence of that person's uh, behaviour, whatever it was, that punishment's appropriate. And Paul says that punishment, verse 6, inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, not you should have done this instead of doing that, but now that that punishment is done, verse 7, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The outcome of discipline amongst believers is to see people restored. Restored into fellowship with one another. There is nothing more uncomfortable, I think, to deal with in church uh, than discipline matters. Uh, Where somebody who has caused a great and deep offence against somebody else that has broken relationship between those people and it has fractured onto others, there is nothing more uncomfortable to deal with. But restoration is a beautiful thing. One of my friend's churches was fractured about 10 years ago when two of its church leaders, who had been best mates for many, many years fell out of relationship because one of those blokes, Todd, stole his best mate's wife. His wife, Joe's wife, left him and took their four kids to go and live with Todd and be married to him. It completely destroyed their relationship, understandably. It fractured the church. Uh, Joe says, and this was uh, recorded in a video that was made public uh, last year, kind of uh, 10 years on. Joe tells about how hurt and bitter and abandoned that he felt. But both, both men, knowing the gospel and with the people round about them, God worked in both these men and the wife involved who was now married to Todd. God worked with and through uh, the leadership of that church to bring about a genuine confession and repentance and reconciliation. In the midst of that great hurt and bitterness, God brought a restoration. So much so that it was only last year that Joe, uh, in his 50s, uh, had terminal cancer. Abandoned and all alone, it was his best mate, Todd, who cared for him um, through that. Todd says this in the video of their interview. I brought shame and pain to a lot of people I caused a lot of hurt to a lot of people. It's something that I can't change. And you think, I did that? And when you do think about that, the evil one comes along and starts to play games with you, saying, you're not forgiven, you can't be forgiven, God won't do that. But as time grows on and as relationships grow... It's just continually shown me 
that Jesus wins every time. There is nothing more uncomfortable to deal with in church than broken relationships and discipline matters. But restoration is a beautiful thing. Paul says it like this in verse 10. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Christ has won. Christ has triumphed. Satan is conquered. It is still dangerous at getting into our relationships and upsetting them. Gutsy gentleness is needed as we deal with our sin against one another. Now, if you're in or find yourself in a conflicted situation with somebody else here at church, or more broadly, in your marriage or in your family, uh, or in the wider Christian community or with people who are not believers uh, Through the leadership in our church and in our wider ch- church networks, we have people who are well trained uh, to help us work through uh, these situations uh, prayerfully and with gutsy gentleness. Now, not always is restoration and reconciliation possible. Not always is it sensible. But God has equipped and will continue to help us to work through those moments of confession and repentance and for each one of us uh, dealing with forgiveness even when perhaps that other person is unrepentant. Uh, Please remember in prayer uh, our church leaders who are often involved in this quietly behind the scenes in ways that most of the time you won't hear anything about. I praise God that we have good and wise, godly uh, men and women uh, serving in these kind of ways. Please remember them uh, in prayer. None of them do it because there's joy in doing this. None of them do it for their own interest. But out of gutsy gentleness, doing it for the good of the community, the church community that God has placed us in. Now for Paul... As high a priority as it is to get relationships right, he is unsettled by another urgency. Verses 12 to 13. He has an unsettled urgency to preach the gospel of Christ. He could have had every excuse to be distracted from that, to say, well, I've got to deal with this very serious conflict over here that is so badly that people are going to be talking about it in 2,000 years' time. All other kinds of uncomfortable situations that Paul uh, had to go through. But his unsettled urgency is to preach the gospel of Christ, verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Uh, 
Because of Christ's triumph, Paul is marked by an unsettled urgency with making Christ known. And that's what we see in this little diversion from Troas to Macedonia. And the story of what happens in Macedonia continues in chapter 7 of his letter that we'll come to in a couple of weeks. Uh, But immediately he interrupts that story for a couple of chapters and here in verse 14 interrupts it to thank God for his triumph. Verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul's perspective on his life, Paul's perspective on his ministry and his mission is that he is being led by Christ in a victorious parade. Any difficulty that he experiences, any burden that he carries uh, for mission is met with his confidence in Jesus, who is the king out front leading him. And Paul is being used effectively by Jesus to spread a smell. See that in verse 14? He's using us to spread the aroma, the smell, the fragrance. The stench, the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere, verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. I live in a house with four sons. There are smells that bring death. (laughs) There are smells that you wish you were dead. And uh, Naomi, her great blessing to her family, our family, is that she has a collection of smells that revive life. And uh, as uh, we're preparing at the end of this term to head off on a six-week camping road trip, I hope she's bringing every bit of those smells uh, with her. Well, the gospel is an aroma. It has a smell. It has a fragrance. It has a stench. It's a smell that you breathe in that goes up your nose and makes your eyes water. For some, it waters with a great joy of repentance and faith. And for others, the eyes water with the stench of death and hatred and turning away from it. C.S. Lewis says this, There are no ordinary people in the world. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Of those that you joke with, work with, marry, snub or exploit, they are either immortal horrors or everlasting splendours. Every single person that you and I know and love is either on the side of life or death in Christ's mission. When they breathe in the smell that the gospel gives off, it is an aroma of life or a stench of death. 
Now, Paul sees himself as a rescued captive who is returning home in victory parade behind his king. Paul once was a captive, but now is free. Once he was bound by sin and death, but now he's forgiven and alive. He once was lost, but now he's found. He once was blind, but now he sees. And in this victory parade, he spreads the fragrant incense, inviting others to be caught up in this victory parade behind King Jesus. I'm going to ask you a very personal question. I'm hoping you don't answer it out loud. What smell do you leave behind you? A life that knows Jesus' triumph gives off the aroma of life. It's a life of goodness. It's a life of godliness. And in the centre of that life is sincere speech about who Jesus is and what he has done. Paul says this in verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Now, Paul had a particular apostolic mission from God. An unsettled urgency uh, for sincere speech of the gospel being made known with gutsy gentleness. We are no less equipped by God to spread the aroma of Christ's gospel with sincere words. Knowing that we're being led by King Jesus in gentle triumph, there is opportunity for us every day to leave the smell of the gospel with the people that God has placed round about us. We've called this sermon series Glory, Grit and Grace. It's a slogan for sincere Christianity. We are living right here now today in the glory of Jesus' victory. We are caught up in that victory parade behind the great and ultimate King who has rescued us. We are persevering with grit in gospel mission behind King Jesus. We spread the gospel of grace with graceful gentleness. And so how do you diffuse the smell of Christ in your life. I think that one of the wonders of God gifting us in so many different ways is the diversity for diffusing the gospel. Not all of us will be Billy Graham. Probably none of us will be Billy Graham. Not, of all, not all of us will be that kind of person who can strike up a conversation with anybody about Jesus. Not all of us will head overseas in cross-cultural mission, learning foreign languages and helping out with Bible translation and radio media out into the broad world. But God has gifted each one of us in different ways for diffusing the gospel. And I've got three very quick, brief points that might help us along in this. 
Number one, remember the perspective of victory. We are gathered into the victory parade behind King Jesus. We are in a gentle, triumphal procession. Number two, keep your eyes fixed on King Jesus more than we have our eyes on ourselves. Know that the great and glorious King Jesus is out the front leading the greatest triumphal parade that there has ever been and ever will be of rescuing people from sin and death. Knowing that he is our King will enable us to give off and share the incense of the gospel. And number three, be deliberate in working out for you your unique opportunity for diffusing the gospel. The particular people that God has placed you in contact with, the the networks and groups that you know, the interests and hobbies that you have that put you in connection with different people. The, the, the particular family and extended family that God has placed you in. The gifts and abilities that God has given you in your, in your workplace. What is your unique opportunity for diffusing the gospel? Because not one of us will want to get to the end of Christ's victory parade and find that we are left with a canister of gospel incense that has been unused.